Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. So, have you ever liked something until you realized who was attached to that something that you liked, and then you were like, ooh, no, I don't like that anymore? Like, like the person themselves turns you off of something that ordinarily you would have been fine with and you would have liked. You know, um, that's happened to me. Uh, I, it's funny because the product doesn't change until you know where the product came from or the thing came from. And then you're like, oh, I just I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's the, tr- it's the same thing with Christianity and with every other major religion in the world, isn't it? That the founder... The origin, the, 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 the beginning, the basis, actually does make a difference with the faith. What I want to do this morning is I want to talk about Jesus. And so we've been in this series about um, how, to, um, uh, how to have a rock-solid faith and how do, we, how do we know that what we believe is right and what we believe is true. Because there are some very exclusive claims of Christianity that no other uh, world religion makes, but... but if those claims are, are so radical, they have to either be true or we have to abandon them, right? And so we're going through this process of saying, okay, what are, what are the foundations of faith and, 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 and what do I believe about, about uh, God and what do I believe about, about uh, suffering and what do I believe about all these different things? And the goal is once we have all of these different angles of our faith on the table, we can say, you know what? I don't understand it all. But there's enough evidence here for me to say I firmly trust that Jesus Christ is who He says He is and that Christianity of the followers of Jesus is, uh, is the right faith for us to follow. Because um, there, are, there are all kinds of faiths out there. There are all kinds of religions out there, aren't there? So let's look this morning primarily at Jesus as the founder of Christianity. But in doing that, I also want to, to pull in some leaders of other, other religions, such as uh, Islam. Islam is a, is a large faith system in our world today. Uh, Buddhism is a large faith system, faith system is our, in our world today. Hinduism is a large faith system within uh, our country, and it's now spread to other countries. Mormonism is a large faith system, not nearly on the scale of those others, but, but you have all of these different... Uh, faiths that say we are the right way, we know from the first time we talked about this that all of, all of them can be wrong, but all of them cannot be right. Because the law of non-contradiction, you can't have two things that are opposing both be absolutely true at the same time. So, I want to start with Jesus, shall we? Open your Bibles, if you will, to um, Philippians chapter 2. Because in Jesus, we have a unique person. In Jesus, we have one who has never been, and I would argue never will be, duplicated or copied. So, there are five major differences, uniquenesses, about Jesus compared to every other faith leader or originator. By the way, let me run through them real quick if I can, okay? So, Buddhism was started in uh, the guy who, who founded that. They call him Buddha. He has a name, but it's a long name, and I don't know how to say it. So, I'm just going to say Buddha, right? So, he was born in the 6th century B.C. And do you want to know, interesting, what brought him to Buddhism? What, what he was struggling with, what he was wrestling with? He was wrestling with suffering and evil. Why is there suffering and evil? And how do we escape suffering and evil? And if you go back and look at the history, what you'll find is that he had an enlightenment to where he was essentially the chosen one to say, this is how you get out. Did I forget to put my mic on? I did. <laughs> Sorry about that. My mic's in my shirt. Better? <laughs> Somebody should have just told me that. <laughs> All right, so, so um, he basically had this enlightenment that said, the way that you deal with suffering is you... You eliminate all of the things in your life that are bad, and you seek essentially to, to live perfect and to be perfect. And so that's a very quick 
brief definition of it, but essentially Buddha would teach or, or, or Buddhism would teach that there's a place eventually that you get to where you're above being human, above being earthly, and you rise into this place of perfection. That's Buddhism. And, but here's the thing. Buddhists become perfect or they get to that perfect place through their own deeds and through their own suffering and their own sacrifice. In other words, they do it to get there. So Islam. Islam is a faith that started uh, with uh, Muhammad. Muhammad in the 5th, 6th century uh, brought, you know, 500 A.D., 600 A.D. Um, actually, I think 600 is more like it. So you had this, you had this boy who became married to a woman who was much older than him. He lived a, a pretty decent life. He was a, a decently moral guy, actually, until he um, started to preach. He had an encounter, and in that encounter, he was told that he was a prophet and that he was the one that was going to lead people in the world to to God. And so he started preaching in the city he was in that, that Allah was the one to be served. Well, they didn't like that too much, so they expelled him from the city. When he went to the new city... He changed his tactics, and that's when his life turned from just being a decent guy into someone that you wouldn't want to model yourself after. A lot of violence, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, pillaging, a lot of a lot of things that we as moral humans being beings would say, no human shouldn't do that. So, Islam, though starting started by Muhammad, has become one of the world's major religions. But here's the thing: Islam teaches that the way to God is through following a set of, 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 of uh, things that you have to do. So the way to God through Islam is yourself, your own works. Joseph Smith started, um, uh, started Mormonism. He basically, as a young man, found some uh, golden plates, and those golden plates were translated into uh, what he would call God's Word. And so through the translation of these plates, he started teaching people. They actually ran him out of town as well. Interesting, every religious leader gets run out of town, including Jesus, by the way. So he was run out of town. He started setting up camp in, in the Utah area. And so um, he essentially taught that Jesus was not the way to the Father, but actually we as people could become the Father ourselves. And so if that confuses you, it should, because in Mormonism, the whole goal is for you to reach the third heaven, which is you are your own God with your own universe, with your own spirit children. And uh, yeah, if your face is going weird, I'm, look at it. It's really, it's really interesting. All that comes from Joseph Smith, okay? And so then you have Hinduism. Hinduism is actually not a monotheistic religion. It's a plurality or it's a... Uh, uh, polytheistic religion. Hinduism is that every god, every religious system has a little bit of good to it, so we're just going to worship them all. It's essentially what was going on in Athens when, uh, when Paul preached to the, uh, to, uh, uh, not Athens, uh, Ephesus. Athens. My, my brain right now is real cloudy. It's weird. I don't know what's going on. I'm fighting this, struggling here. So, um, it's, it's basically, you know, we've got this God, let's raise him up, this God, raise him up, and that, that is an Indian religion, primarily. And so in India, you'll find temples, and you'll find worship acts, and you'll find all over India these uh, explanations of multiple gods. Of course, that doesn't have a founder as much as it has uh, some spokesmen, but, but it's just a, it's a conglomeration of many gods. So you've got all of these different religions, and there's many, many more I don't talk about, but you've got all these different religions. I gave you a brief, brief, brief snapshot of them. Here you have Christianity, though, and Christianity sets itself up as different. Christianity says that uh, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that every other religion is wrong. Again, that sounds exclusive, right? That sounds arrogant, right? That sounds, uh, that sounds offensive, especially in our culture today. But here's the deal. Of all the faith systems that are out there, if we go back to the leaders, who has the credibility to be able to say, no, this one is real? I would argue that Jesus unequivocally has the authority to say Christianity is the real deal. Here's why. In Philippians chapter 2, in chapter 2, starting in verse 5, here's what the Scripture says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul is speaking to the Philippian church, and he's saying, look, your mind should be the same as Christ Jesus. You, have, you should have the same attitude. This is who you, should, who, who you should be like. In other words, 
you should be like the founder of the faith that you profess, right? Go back to these other faiths. Would anybody want to use Muhammad as the model of their life? I mean, would you look at, at, at Muhammad's life and go, I want to be everything Muhammad ever was? Would you want to go back to Buddha and say, I want to be everything that Buddha ever was? Everything he thought, everything he did, every, every way that he loved, every place that he went, everything that... I want to be just like Buddha. Would anybody say, I want to be just like Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is my hero. I'm just going to pattern my life to do everything that he did. No, not even the followers of Mormonism or Islam or Buddhism would say we want to be just like our leader. They wouldn't say that. Why? Because they would all have to admit that their leader had flaws. But with Christianity, it is radically different. Here's what we say. Matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God. Well, the scripture says that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And, and, and also, uh, Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So in other words, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. When you see Jesus in this kindness, you're seeing the kindness of God. When you look at Jesus and His love, you're seeing the love of God. When you see Jesus and His, and His justice, when He goes through the temple and clears it out, you're seeing the justice of God. To look at Jesus is to see God. And so... Our faith says, be like Jesus. Not in some ways, not in most ways, but in every single way. Why? Because of the uniqueness of who Jesus is and claimed to be. So, I told you there are five differences. Here, here they are. Um, I'll make sure I get them right. The first one is this, that Jesus didn't have a beginning. Every other faith leader had a beginning. We can go back and say they were born on this day. In Christianity, our leader doesn't have a beginning. The Bible says that he's eternal. In, in John chapter 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And so we understand through the Scripture that Jesus doesn't have a birth date. He was coexistent with the Father. We'll talk about that in a moment. But because he doesn't have a beginning, that means he's, he's different than you and I, in that he is not confined to the time and the space that we are, we are confined to. He's infinite. Every other religious leader was finite. Every other religious leader had boundaries that they had to stay within. Jesus Christ was here before the foundations of the earth, according to the Bible. Okay. The second thing is that Jesus was the only world lead, uh, religious leader who came into the world and who, was, uh, who, who, who came in the, the, the form or the mode that he did. He was born of a virgin, right? And so that virgin birth was unique. None of these other faith leaders had that kind of birth. They all had normal, regular, ordinary births. The virgin birth was unique because it was necessary for him to be who he was. We'll talk about that in just a second. The third is that Jesus was the only religious leader who was not sinful, who had no sin. Not only did he not have any sin, but he didn't even have anything that people could accuse him of as sin and let it stick. You remember when he was tried by the, by the Pharisees before Pilate? They said, what do you, what, what's your charge against him? Well, he lied. No, we don't have any proof he lied. Well, he did this. We don't have any proof. The only thing they could get him on was what? They charged him and accused him of what? Blasphemy. What was the blasphemous word that he spoke? He said, I am God. He claimed deity. So you've got these three differences. The fourth difference is really pretty major. He's the only leader of a faith system who did not expect people to come to him. Rather, he came to people. He's the only faith leader who actually gave himself and died so that the people could have life. Remember, in Islam, the way you get to the Father is by doing what? By doing good. There are pillars that you have to, have to follow. I believe there's eight of them, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. In, uh, in, in Mormonism, there are, there are different uh, uh, requirements that you have to do in order to get to God. Again, it's all about your works. In Hinduism, it's the same thing. You've got to appease the gods. You've got to offer sacrifices. You've got to do these works. In, um, in Buddhism, it's about what you do and how much you sacrifice yourself and how much you lay yourself down. In Christianity, 
Jesus said, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You can be made alive, but it's only by grace through faith that this, this, this life can come. So Jesus is the only leader who said, you can't do enough to get to me, but because you can't do enough, I am going to come to you. And so the Bible says that Jesus became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as He dwelt among us, He lived the life that you and I live. That means that that's why the Scripture says we don't have a high priest who is unsympathetic to our weakness. No, He's been tempted in every way. Listen, everything you're ever tempted on, Jesus was tempted with. We sometimes look at Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and because the Bible records three particular, weakness, uh, three particular temptations, we say, look, he was only tempted by those three things. That's not true. Those are just the three that are recorded. But for 40 days and 40 nights, he was pounded by temptation in every way. And every single time, he responded to the enemy by, uh, well, based on those three, by Scripture. But every single time, he, he stood his ground and he remained sinless. So the fifth is even more unique. In every other faith system, the leader is what? Dead. If you go and dig up Buddha's, Buddha's grave, you're going to find some bones. If you go and dig up Muhammad's grave, you're going to find bones. If you go and dig up Joseph Smith's grave, Smith's grave you're going to find bones. Every religion that exists, if you go to their leader, you're going to find bones. But if you go to Jesus' grave, guess what, you, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find an empty, gra- an empty tomb and an empty grave cloth. Why? Because as, a unique, uh, as the unique Son of God, He was universally and radically and unequivocally different. All right. I just gave to you in like 10 minutes... I opened up a fire hydrant and spewed a bunch of information out. I realize that. And I know that probably your, your, your brain is going, what in the heck did you just say, right? I said all that to say that this topic or this, this conversation about who Jesus is, you cannot fit into a small, teeny, tiny box. Because it's like a Pandora's box. When you open one section, you've got this whole other room, right? Then you go in and open that section, you've got a whole other room. You've got the work of Christ, and you've got the person of Christ. In my theology book that's about 800 pages, or one of them that's about 800 pages long, Jesus, talking about just the person of Christ and the work of Christ, takes 200 pages. And it's insufficient to fully explain who He is. Why is that? Because Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. Jesus was deity. Let me show you. You with me? Philippians 2, chapter five, uh, 2, verse 5 and following. In your relationships with one another, you have, this, uh, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you'll move just a chapter or just a couple pages to the right in your Bible, Colossians chapter 2. And verse 9 says this For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Then, of course, John 1. One, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what we have is this, this biblical claim that Jesus wasn't just a man, but He was God and man at the same time. Now, this is a hard concept to grasp. Again, because we're looking at this and we're trying to fit God into, into our understanding of what God is, of deity, and our understanding of what hu- a human is. And remember, we have 2D eyes. We see what's here before us. We, we, we see boundaries and edges, and we are finite, right? 
We are limited. In order to understand how God becomes flesh, we have to move over into the understanding of eternal or infinite. In other words, recognize that, that we're talking about something that is not confined to time and to space, but it's, it's, it's bigger than that. No mind has conceived, no, no ear has heard, right? Because, because this, 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 this God that we serve is far greater and far, far more complex and far more, more mysterious than we could ever imagine, right? In, in terms of understanding it on our own finite brains. So when the Scripture says that who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You might have a translation that says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what that means is this, that Jesus is the second person of a triune God. As Christians, we believe the Scripture very clearly teaches in what we, what we call the Trinity. Now, you'll not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you don't have to find the label for it. You just have to find the teaching for it. And when I studied the Trinity um, two years ago more in depth, what I found was that every verse was tied to each other in that you could take one verse by itself, but, but you couldn't separate it from the rest of it. Like, it's like, you ever play that game Pickup Sticks, right? Or Jenga? When you move one, you move them all. It's like, this, it's like this bowl of spaghetti, if you will. I'm trying to create mental pictures for you here. With a bowl of spaghetti, they're all intertwined. you got a bunch of different noodles, but it's still a bowl of spaghetti, right? Understanding the Trinity, or a triune God, is kind of the same way. You don't necessarily have one verse that explains everything, but what you have is a whole testimony of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that explains that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so when we deal specifically with Jesus, what we have is God the Son becoming flesh. Now, let me back up for just a moment. Here's the best way for me to explain the Trinity, okay? Are you a body? Like, like physically, is your existence, you, you, that, that you, you exist in a body, right? You have a body, right? So is that who you are? But you also have a mind, intelligence. So, so are you are you a, a thinking? Are you a thinker? Are you are you a are you a, a, a intellect, or or are you a body? Which one are you? Or do you have a soul? So, if you have a soul, are you a soul, or are you a mind or a thinker, or are you a body? Which which one of those are you? See, everybody in here would argue, I'm not just one, I'm all three. And all three of these are in unity. I am triune. I have a soul, I have a mind, and I have a body. All of those make up me. Guess what? If you take away your body, you're no longer you, right? If you take away your soul, you're no longer you. Same with your mind. So when we think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, it's the same way. Not the same way, but it's the best we can do. Now, why would God make us this way? Because in Genesis, we find that, that God created us how? In His own image. Here's a really cool part. When the Scripture talks about, in the Old Testament, uses the word one, talks about uh, a being one in Genesis 2, where when God says, and I will join Adam and Eve together, and, and, and the two will become one flesh, that word one in Hebrew is only one of two words that's used for one. The first word is a word that is singular. It's quantitative. The second word is, is a word that's not quantitative, but it's, it's descriptive. So the first word means singular, this one. The second word one that we translate one means this unity. So it's unity. It's, it's, it's singular in purpose, not singular in, in, in quantity. Does that make sense? So when Jesus said the two shall become one flesh, we know that every marriage has a man and a woman, right? I mean, there's two there, but there's one, which means there's unity. That's the same thing that God said in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, verse 6, no, 6 verse 4, where we have the greatest passage of the Old Testament to all Jews. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God is one, right? Every Jew on the face of the planet knows if they know nothing else, they know that one verse. Now, when God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, guess which word he used? He used this, the, the, not the singular, but the unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is unity, is one. What was he talking about? He was talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I offer that as a little piece because if you tie that in with every other proof, what you'll find is that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, he came as fully God and became fully man. Now, somebody go, my mind is blown, right? I mean, how do you comprehend that, right? Because again, we're looking from a 2D. We're looking at this from our own perspective. And what we understand as humanity is, is limited. The only humanity you and I understand is sinful life, brokenness, chaos. You know, there's joy and all those other things. But, but when we look at humanity, we find what, what, it, what humanity is now, right? We find the, the, the sin and the pain and, the, and, and the, the death and all those things. But is that what Jesus, is that what God created? No. Go all the way back to Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars, and did all the things that He created. On the sixth day, He created Adam and Eve. He created humanity. And what did He say when He created them? It is good, right? That is the humanity that was, that, that was lost. That was the humanity that in all of its perfection did not strive, did not have to worry, did not have to doubt, did not have fear, did not have pain, did not have sorrow, none of those things. So when we say, how is it that God could become man, we're looking at it as He became man in the kind of man that we are, broken and and sinful and hurt and chaotic. But Jesus didn't come... In, as a man like we are, humanity-wise, he came perfectly man. Does that make sense? How do we know this? This is why the virgin birth is so important. Because Jesus was not sired by another human father. Jesus was a miraculous birth through, uh, uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so when he was born, he did not have the seed of man, which makes him in a whole different category, doesn't it? Now, here's the deal. He was still man. He was just perfect man. He still had temptations, but he just didn't have sin in his life. Now, because you remember, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he he said, you are perfect in every way, right? One of the pictures of the perfection of Adam and Eve is that they were naked and they felt no shame. They were perfect in every way. Their their relationship with God was face-to-face. There was no distance. There was no brokenness. But God still said, there's a tree you may not eat of, right? So they were perfect, even in the midst of choice, they chose to break that by sinning. I'm saying that Jesus, when he was born, he was born perfect, yet he, even though he had the choice to sin, he didn't sin. It's what makes his life so radically different. Y'all with me here? Does this make sense? Here's why this is important. Because when we say, who being, being a very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death. Trust me, if you'll follow me, I promise this will make sense. I, I hope. So, we look at this from a human perspective saying, God became flesh. Jesus left heaven and he became a man. And what we normally say, and, and I know why we say this because it's, it's the best way we can say it, we normally say he left his deity and his power as God and he, and he set that aside and he came to be a human and, and, and he lived as a man um, but, but he was not God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. So rather than think that he, he left his deity and became a man, here's a better way to look at it. He actually confined himself as God to the constraints of man. All of his power and all of his, all of his might, everything that he was, 
essentially, he stuffed into the jar of a man. Let me say it this way. So, Hannah just, um, she might be up here, kids. Oh, there she is. Hannah just broke the school record for Gulf Breeze. Very proud of her. She is uh, 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 18 minutes and 34 seconds for 5K. That's crazy fast. And we've got some other runners here who are probably going to break the record too. So, I mean, just pretty, pretty amazing running. So let's just say for, 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 for illustration purposes that Hannah is, is, is Jesus. Now, you're not. I just want to make sure you... So let's say she's Jesus. Okay, so that's deity. That's divinity. I'm, I'm God, the Son, right? And then let's say that she wants to, to race. So she comes and she says, hey, I'm going to race this next 5K, but I'm going to strap one leg to my dad. And so we tie our legs together. So we're going to do this race as a three-legged race, right? Right? She has the ability to run 18.34 for the 5K. But guess what? She ain't running 18.34 in the 5K if she got her dad strapped to her leg. We're probably going to hit the two-hour mark. A few, a few bruises and bumps. Why? Because she's limited who she is by strapping herself to me, her dad. It's one way we can look at this, that God did not leave His divinity. He brought His divinity, His deity with Him, but He limited Himself by by becoming the form of a human, by, by, by having a body, right? And so when Jesus was on the earth, He was both fully God and fully man. And again, our understanding of what it means to be a human makes it hard for us to understand that. But from his perspective, he came to be exactly what God created us to be in the very beginning. Essentially, this is why we say we want to be like Christ. Because Jesus Christ was perfect. Jesus Christ didn't sin. Jesus Christ followed his Father. He was dependent upon his Father. He had communion with his Father. Did you ever wonder why so many times Jesus would go to a lonely place and pray? Like, why would he need to do that? I mean, as God, he could just do, 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 right? But instead, he goes, you know what? I have put myself in this human body, and so I'm now going to go, and I'm going to have a relationship with my Father, and I want to demonstrate to my disciples what it means to be a human, but know an eternal Father. So he said... Uh, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Here's what's so amazing to me about this. If Jesus was fully God, which he was, if he was deity, right? And he, he comes to earth and he becomes fully man. He confines himself to the, to the, to the dimensions of a human, right? He, 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 he's really downgrading his status. I mean, think about this. The Bible says all authority has been given to Jesus. That means that everything in the universe, not just the earth, but everything in the universe bows to him. The Bible says that as the preexistent one, he was there when the foundations of the earth were laid because he was the one who laid the foundations of the earth. And yet he comes and takes on the form of a servant. He doesn't even come as a a middle class guy. He doesn't come as an upper class rich guy. He comes as a servant. Think of this. He comes and he, 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 he humiliates himself on this earth... And the sole motivation for doing so was obedience to the Father because only through Him being on this earth could He redeem that which was lost, you and me. It's like this. I I heard this simple story and it makes sense to me. There was a man who was inside of his house and it was snowing outside and he saw that there were little birds suffering outside of his window. And so he goes and... And, and he opens the door and he goes out to try to usher the little birds inside to the safety of his home that was heated and he had food. And, and when he goes outside, the birds scatter. 
He goes, man, if they only knew what I was trying to do. So he goes inside, shuts the door and looks and they come gather again in his front yard. So he goes out again and he tries this over and over and over trying to get these little birds inside to the safety of the home because he knows that they're going to die if they stay out there. And he says to himself, if only I could become a bird, then they would know that I'm just trying to help. And that maybe is a picture of what Jesus did when he was incarnate as a man. Jesus came and lived and walked fully God, but fully man. That's why and that's how we know what God is like. Think about this. How would you know how much God loved people other than saying God loves people if you did not have Jesus as the example? How would you know what mercy looked like if you didn't have Jesus as an example? How would you know what grace looked like? How would you know how to respond to people who persecute you? How would you know how to, how to, uh, to demonstrate kindness or justice like God had Jesus not come? You wouldn't. I wouldn't. All we would have is we would have these commands of, of an unknown, or excuse me, of an unseen God. We can see the work of God. We can see his, his, his handiwork, but we can't see him face to face. And so God said, I will go there and I will be face to face. And I will redeem the world back to myself. Again, the work of Christ. When he takes on the form of a servant, he did the ultimate. He, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's what we need to understand about the cross. The cross was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument designed to punish the worst of the worst and to cause the most possible human pain and prolong it for the longest period of time. The Romans were experts at pain. They developed this thing called the cross, crucifixion. In fact, I've said this before, but, but the word that we use for pain when it's terrible is what? It's excruciating pain, right? That word excruciating or excruciate literally means out of the cross. So we define our worst pain as excruciating out of the cross pain. So when Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross... He was subjecting himself to the most excruciating pain. And he did it without malice. He did it on his own accord. And he did it without anger or retribution. Go back and listen to the story in the scripture. Remember what it sounds. Remember, Jesus stood before Pilate, right? And he stood before Herod. And through the through the times that he was um, tried by them, what, what kind of responses did he give? Did he say, yeah, I'm going to get you? Did he say, you're going to pay for this? No, he was silent. And as they hurled lies and insults, he remained silent. And then he said one incredible thing. He said, you have no power on me except the power that my father gives you over me. Now that just cut to the heart right there. But he was then led through the city of Jerusalem, through, a play, uh, through the streets. And it was a pathway to the place of execution called the Via Dolorosa. The way of suffering is what that means. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a series of streets that march through the city. And as he marched through the city, um, crowds would have come out of their shops. They would have stopped buying and they would have looked at the, at the one being crucified. And it was perfectly acceptable to laugh and to joke and to jeer and to spit, and to hit, there were not the same rights that you and I would have for them. They were a criminal, and they wanted the most humiliation, and the most suffering, and the most pain that is humanly possible to the ones who are about to die. That's why they marched them through the streets. One of, one of them was that they could be judged by the people. The other was that they could be a, a demonstration to other people. Hey, don't do bad, because if you do bad, this is going to happen to you. They marched them through the way of suffering out of the city gate onto the hill called Golgotha, place of the skull. And when they laid him on the beam, they took these giant nails and they pounded them through the bones in his wrist, being very careful not to hit an artery because they didn't want him to bleed out, but being careful enough to make sure that that, that, that nail through the wrist would come up against a nerve and uh, uh, that nerve, every time it's just barely touched, would shoot excruciating pain all throughout the body. 
So they did that for the left hand, they did that for the right hand, and then they put the feet together and did that same thing through the feet. And then they took the cross and they lifted it up and they dropped it into the hole that they had dug. And their purpose was to keep them alive, not to kill them. Their purpose was to let, let time be the death of them so that there be the most amount of pain. And so most people, when they died on the cross, they didn't die from bleeding out and they didn't die from, uh, uh, from, from just hanging there. They died from suffocation. Physically, what happened was the body would suffocate because they were hanging and they could not breathe. So they'd have to lift up to take a breath. And when they did that, though, the nerve endings in their feet where the nails had gone through would shoot pain all throughout the body. So they would take a breath and then come down. And of course, when they did that, it would be nerve endings from their hands shooting pain throughout the body. This would last for days sometimes. Now, if you've ever been out on a boat or if you've ever been out on a football field or a baseball field in the middle of the summer, you've experienced the sun beating down on you. And what happens? You have no water and so your mouth becomes thirsty. Your tongue becomes cottony and you, you can't even swallow because your throat has closed in on itself. And not to mention that Jesus, before being marched through the Via Della Rosa, was laid over on a post and he was tied by his hands and he was given 39 lashes by a cat of nine tails, which was a whip made out of leather straps, nine leather straps, and inside each of those leather, leather straps were pieces and chips of bone and, and perhaps pieces of metal. And the goal was for the soldier to literally peel the flesh off the back of the, of the, the, the criminal. So every time Jesus would have pushed up to breathe, his, his bare raw back would have rubbed up against the tree. Folks, what I'm saying to you is this. Everything about his death was horrendous. But who was it that was dying? It was God in the flesh. Who said, I will leave my throne. And I will take on the form of a servant. And I will allow them to mock me. And I will allow them to spit on me. And I will allow them to jeer at me. And I will allow them to lie about me. I will allow them to bind my hands and tie me to a post. I will allow them to whip me on my back and shed my, shed my skin. I will allow them to nail me into a wooden cross. And I will allow them to lift me up so that all the world can see. Because if the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all, draw all men to myself. And on that cross... In the most excruciating condition possible, his words were not, Father, repay them for what they are doing to me. He did not say, Father, may they be struck with judgment from on high. And even though he could have, he did not say, Father, it's not worth it. Send your angels to rescue. And 10,000 angels, according to the scripture, would have come and rescued him instantly. No, what his words were, were simple. Father, forgive them, for they have no idea the love that I have for them. Father, forgive them, for they, because they don't know that this death is the sacrifice for their sin. Father, forgive them, because they have no idea that the pain that I am bearing right now, I'm bearing for them. And they hate me. But Father, I'm obedient, because it's the only way and then the Bible says that he breathed his last and gave up his ghost inside that little chunk of scripture is a beautiful piece of information the soldiers didn't kill Jesus the lashings didn't kill Jesus the cross didn't kill Jesus the, 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 uh, the suffocation didn't kill Jesus you want to know what killed Jesus he gave himself over to death. Now, those were tools. But what that tells you is even in death, he had ultimate, complete authority. And when he breathed his last, the earth turned dark. 
the, the rocks trembled and broke apart. And one of the soldiers, who make no mistake, he was a professional executioner. He said of Jesus, surely this was the Son of God. His own testimony at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that his body was taken down after his side was pierced. And I'm going to go into this another time, but essentially there were at least 16 prophecies that happened through the death of Jesus. All of them foretold hundreds of years prior. Little details such as not a, not a single bone would be broken. Normally for execution, they would have taken Jesus and they would have taken a club and cracked his bones in his legs. They would have done that to make him die faster because the Sabbath was coming and he couldn't stay up on the cross then, right? Or, or the Passover was coming. So the reason that they didn't do that though was because they pierced his side and said, surely he is dead. He died way faster than he should have. Why? Because he didn't get, he wasn't killed. He gave his life. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Church, what I want you to hear me say this morning, and I, and I, I, I cannot put words around it, the Jesus that we sung about is not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He was God made flesh who came and walked in your shoes, who understands everything there is to understand about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your deepest sorrow. He knows your, your greatest sin. And he still says, Father, I love them. Father, forgive them. And he gave himself in your place. He substituted himself so that you and I could be forgiven. You show me any religion on the planet that the founder died for their people to have a way to God. doesn't exist. You say, well, why should I, why should I follow Jesus? Because he's, he's the only one that is if you will, the full package. In a game of chess, there's this thing called checkmate. Checkmate is when you have the other person's king captured. If they move to the right, they're caught. If they move to the left, they're caught. If they move back for whatever, basically there's no other move. When I was thinking through all of, the, all of the ways that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law, the New Testament law, the miracles, the stories, the words, everything He claims He is, and all the fulfillment of who He claims to be, the only thing I could think of was this. Checkmate. God has sealed up every corner. He has thought of everything. And you can trust him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In another week or two, I'm going to talk about how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, how he, was, he demonstrated he was deity, how he even claimed he was. But this morning... I simply wanted to paint a picture for you and for me of how amazing, how unthinkable it is that God made flesh would die. Church, that should change everything. We should never be able to sing a song with the name of Jesus in it with, with, a, with a cold heart. We should never be able to pray in Jesus' name without enthusiasm or passion, if we really comprehended what God did for us. But because we're flesh and blood, we do that, don't we? This morning, would you let God show you how awesome He really is? We you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment?
I tried to share with you today that there's no other religion that's covered all the bases, that's made it, that, that's made the most sense, that's had a founder who was also the Savior. No other religion that that says you can't work your way to God. Only God can work His way to you. There's no other religion whose prophet or founder cannot be found. Only Jesus has these unique qualities. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? What part of your life do you need Jesus as a part of? He's not come to be just a good prophet. He's come to be Lord. Do your lips acknowledge Him as Lord? Right where you are, if, you're, if you would, would have the honesty to say that you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've never truly believed in Him for all that He is, I want to invite you to do that. Right where you are, would you simply to say to God, God, I trust Jesus Christ now. I ask Him to forgive me of my sin, and I ask Him to, to make me right with God. But you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, I'm asking you to say the same prayer. But just ask, invite Jesus into whatever situation you're in. Invite Him into that issue. That struggle. And ask Him to help you just to be obedient to follow Him. Father in heaven, I pray you would help us to know your nearness. Help us to know that we are not forsaken. Lord, as we commit ourselves to you, may it be something real and substantive. listening. You can find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.